0: listeners it's sam here again and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show paces ahead have courses for the start of 2024 and listeners here's a possible sweetener for you i will be there at their first course of 2024 that's the 16th to the 19th of january please do come along and say hi if you catch me it would be great to meet some of you if you're there but there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well, the 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market leading online revision PACES resource. I think most PACES sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labeled Pass Test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome to the Pre-PACES podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams, and this week brings us another episode looking closely at the role of being a medical registrar. That's what the B-A-M-R stands for. And this is interspersed amongst our usual episodes of PACES content. The hope will be that with these episodes, we can best prepare this wonderful audience with all the skills, knowledge, and attitudes needed to become a phenomenal medical reg... I'll be recording more episodes hearing from current medical regs as well as medical consultants about what they would have wanted to know when they were starting out as a medical reg. And what a treat we had this week to kick off the first consultant featuring on our Being a Med Reg episodes. I was well and truly delighted to welcome along the fantastic Dr. Amy Burbridge, AMU consultant and host of the brilliant Home of Medicine podcast. We talk about Amy's 10 years of being a medical reg, Amy gives her top 3 skills, as well as one totally overrated attribute of being a medical reg. Amy was a truly brilliant guest, and as an avid listener to the Home of Medicine podcast myself, I genuinely had to stop myself from fanboying throughout the entire recording. Anyway, enough on that for now, let's get cracking on this week's episode of the Pre-PACES podcast. Welcome along listeners to this episode of the Pre-PACES podcast and today we're taking another deep dive into life as a medical registrar and seeking out even more expert advice from a guest who has been there, done it and got the t-shirt. Today we're welcoming another member of the medical podcasting family, Dr. Amy Burbridge. Amy is a consultant in acute medicine at University Hospitals, Coventry and Warwickshire NHS Trust. However, she's arguably more famous for being the fantastic host of the Home of Medicine podcast, and prior to that, the RCP Medicine podcast. The RCP Medicine podcast has been running since 2019, and it discusses a variety of medical topics, including evidence-based guidelines, comprehensive reviews of common conditions, and more recently, it's covered topics related to health inequalities. More recently, however, Amy has launched the Home of Medicine, where she invites consultant guests onto the show to discuss tricky cases that come through the medical take in a whodunit style of podcasting, where they then discuss the diagnosis in question with a brief digestible literature review that listeners can take into their own clinical practice. Both of these podcasts can be found on most podcasting apps, and we're delighted to be welcoming Amy to the show today. So Amy, welcome.
1: Hi Sam, thank you very much for inviting me, and it's a great pleasure to be a member of this fantastic podcast. Um, And it's weird to be on the other side. I have to say, it's really nice for a change.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, it's one of the it's one of the things I've been uh, trying to do is sort of incorporate more members of the medical podcasting family. And we had a a little chat before we started recording of of the fact we sort of listen to each other's podcasts. And uh, all I would say is to anyone who hasn't listened to Home of Medicine already definitely go in there and and have a listen to it because it really is a fantastic uh, a fantastic podcast if you sort of like rummaging through the various symptoms and signs and eventually come to a, a diagnosis it, i'm sure we can we can talk more about that a little bit later on but today amy we're covering a topic which we've uh, touched on in other episodes of the podcast and that is being a medical registrar now at the top i said uh, You've been there, done it, and got the t-shirt. And one of the things I've been hoping to try and offer listeners in this podcast is a uh, sort of a graduated transition from the point that they pass paces to the point where they become a junior registrar, just like me, as I am, you know, in my first year of, of being a, a cardiology reg and and a general medical reg on call. And so um, today's discussion is hopefully just going to talk a bit about your experience as a, as a medical reg. I guess, talk about some of the skills and uh, attributes of, of a good medical reg that you might work with on a daily basis. So without further ado, let's get into this episode on being a medical reg with Dr. Amy Burbridge. So Amy, just to start off, what are your most prominent memories of your time as a medical reg reg?
1: Wow. Okay. So, um, to put it into context a little bit, I was a medical reg for what felt like a million years. So, I actually started as a med reg in 2009 and didn't become a consultant until 2019. So, 10 years I was a med reg, which is twice the length of a normal medical registrar training. (laughs) So, um, I definitely had a huge amount of experience um, as a med reg. So, lasting memories, best and worst things. Oh, God, where do I start? I think the first thing I really want to say to everybody out there who is doing PACES, who is IMT, and is looking towards their registrar role, it genuinely is the best job I have ever done. And it's the hardest job I have probably ever done. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong. It's really hard. It's really challenging. And some days I'd come home and cry. And some days I would come home so enthused and happy. And the great thing about being a med reg is no two days are ever the same. I have so many memories over the many years I was a med reg. I think one thing that really sticks with me throughout it is that feeling that we're all in it together. And I think As a medical, medical registrars are almost like a fraternity um, of a group of people. And it's only medical registrars who really know what it's like to be a medical registrar. And you sort of have, you've all got each other's backs. You're all supporting each other. And it's a really nice group to be part of. And I really think that we should probably actually do a little bit more to promote getting together as medical registrars and really discussing what we do, what's good about it, what's bad about it. How can we actually make the role of a med reg better?
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think there's a perception among SHOs, IMTs, and probably foundation doctors as well, that the typical med reg is, you know, bleeps going off every two minutes on the phone all the time they've got everyone at their beck and call but actually i completely agree and it's it's far more enjoyable than my expectation was as as a well core trainee as as i was at the time and it is so different to my expectation and there are so many things to well, first of all, to I don't I don't know about the word celebrate, but I guess be proud of in, in being a medical reg because you are in the same boat as the rest of your cohorts, and there are there are many benefits which I am sure we'll we'll talk through uh, through the course of this podcast. And um, all I all I would say to anyone who's listening who is in two minds about whether or not they want to pursue a career where they might be the medical reg on call, in my opinion, the apprehension and trepidation is massively overplayed i think by the time you complete your im3 training you have the capabilities to do that job and by the time you've done paces you've done your mrcp you know the answers to the questions which are which people are going to be phoning you with and it's all i would say is it's by the time you finish it's not as hard as people have the perception of of it that's my opinion anyway
1: yeah it feels like a natural progression so you've done your paces and you on an IMT3 or as I was ST2 many years ago it feels like I was almost itching to become a med reg it was like I you know I felt like I'd done my years as a SHO and I had the skills and I was equipped and ready to go exactly like you were
0: Yeah fantastic and so one question I wanted to um ask you Amy is you know you just said you're a medical reg for 10 years so I guess we can sort of split this question into two is like how did the medical reg role change over the course of that those 10 years and then how do you think it's changed from the time when you were a medical reg to now and maybe especially now in in a in a sort of post-covid era
1: yeah I mean I've seen so many changes some good some not so good some bad so when I started as a med reg in 2009 the medical registrar at that time I'd just gone through the MTAS debacle, which if anybody's listening, they may or may not remember, which was when um, we were sort of the first year to go into um, ST1, ST2 and ST3. And we were sort of put in, put in areas we may not have worked before, different dean arrears, we may not have known people, lots of people didn't get the job they wanted to do. As I started as an ST3, my first placement was in a really lovely District General Hospital. Yet. I was the only person pretty much on the shop floor back then of a weekend, for example. So I remember my first weekend ever as a medical reg on call. And there was me, there was one SHO and one junior doctor, and that was it. So the consultant would come along at five o'clock in the afternoon and do a post-hate ward round. But during the day, there was very little, if any, consultant presence of a weekend. And do you know? I actually quite enjoyed that in a way because I felt like I was a real doctor. I got to make decisions. I got to speak to relatives. I got to speak to patients. I was felt like I was actually in charge, and I do find that that has changed quite a lot now. Is now when I'm on call. So I did a shift in ED last week. In a weird way, I still feel like the med reg because I feel like a lot of the onus and responsibility has actually passed on to the consultant now, particularly in the bigger hospitals where actually we have presence. For, you know, 18 hours a day. So it's quite a lot. Um, And ward rounds are continuous now, whereas back then they weren't. Also, night shifts, we were very, very short staffed. You know, the staffing seems a little bit better now, although probably not as good as it again could still be we were less a part of the tick box culture back in then as well. There was less emphasis on the e-portfolio because it was new and it was just sort of being brought into it. And I do find now that, you know, I do work with some trainees and it is very much about that e-portfolio. What do I need to tick off to finish this, to complete this before I can move on to the next section? And I think that's a real shame, actually. I did sort of like the old fashioned sort of I guess it used to be a little bit more like an apprenticeship, whereas that sort of feels like it's gone a little bit. Um, So I do think that's definitely changed. Um, I did actually take a couple of years out to be a teaching fellow um, as a med reg, because I did two years as a rheumatology trainee. So I did ST3 and ST4 in rheumatology. And actually, wasn't for me, for many reasons, but it wasn't for me. And I I just love to keep medicine. So I went into that. And I had a bit of a I guess burnout at the end of ST4. I couldn't tell anybody that I was burnt out. I couldn't explain the reasons as to why I was leaving rheumatology because there was a lot of shame attached to it then. There was a lot of shame of changing careers, of changing specialties. Nobody talked about mental health. Nobody talked about burnout. And nowadays, I do actually think that one of the great things about medicine is that we do talk about that more. So when I wanted to leave rheumatology because I was exhausted and burnt out I never told anybody that I came up with some reason that you know the clinics don't suit me and and whatever but actually I wasn't I was burnt out I was broken and to take time off I actually did a clinical teaching job because that was the only way I knew to get back on track whereas I think hopefully I certainly hope that the trainees I supervise that they would feel able to talk to me about their mental health and able to talk about burnout, whereas I certainly didn't then. And I do think that is one of the key things that medicine as a whole has experienced, actually, is the openness we can actually talk about our mental health now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what I think that demonstrates now is not just that the the role or the the culture in hospitals has has evolved to bring bring that to the attention of, Everyone concerned, really, consultants and trainees, and you know, even even wider staff, managers as well. It's also the fact that, in my opinion, it's seen as a a strength of a trainee to recognise and have the insight to recognise they are suffering from burnout or anxiety or low mood or or whatever, which may be connected to work, but people always have other things going on. People have personal lives, etc. And I just think the more, yeah, obviously the more we can talk about it, the better, you know, the better our work systems are going to be able to manage it. And it's funny you mentioned uh, that, Amy, because very, very soon I'm also uh, planning an episode on stress management in in the NHS where um, I'm having a consultant, some psychiatrist come on who's an expert in stress management. So listeners, keep your ears out for that coming very soon to your podcast feed, Um, but yeah. And Amy, thank you for being so so candid with that. And I we, we do hear these stories of trainees leaving specialties due to many different and varied reasons. And the one thing I would say is that it takes a great deal of strength to do that because you've invested so much in yourself and your career that actually to do that is actually a you know really brave thing to actually say, regardless of how much work I've done in the past, my mental health and my well being is more important than my profession at the moment.
1: Yeah, and it's what's really what's what's really interesting is when I left rheumatology to change to acute medicine and I went to the interview and the interview panel for acute medicine, I'm like, why? Why do you want to leave rheumatology? You know, it's this lovely specialty and it is wonderful. It just didn't suit me. You know, there was this misconception out there that actually there are easy specialties and there are hard specialties. But I actually disagree with that. You know, I think all specialties are hard and they're all challenging. And actually, for me, it was about the right specialty that suited me. And I think that was the most important thing. So I think I went into rheumatology because I really enjoyed the academic side of it. I was obsessed with anchor and also antibodies and all this stuff. But when it came down to it, I actually struggled with the clinic work and I struggled with not actually being on call for acute medicine. So for me, I really like the fast pace of acute medicine, which I know puts some people off. So I think when choosing the specialty, you know, it's all about what suits you as a person. And I think you actually know in your gut sometimes what's right for you. And, you know, a lot of people tried to put me off doing acute medicine. And I absolutely love it. And it's absolutely the right decision for me. And I think that's most important when we are choosing that specialty. I know we're going to talk about this later, but I think it is, you know, really about what suits your personality, not what people think is going to be best for you.
0: Well, the intention was we would uh, finish off the episode talking about uh, acute medicine and um, choosing it as a specialty you might wish to pursue, but we've uh, segued quite naturally into uh, discussing uh, acute medicine as a specialty. So we'll we'll do a bit of jiggery pokery and just uh, we'll we'll start off with the with the questions I uh, was going to ask you at the end, Amy. Um, so the first question I was going to ask is, well. I mean maybe you've sort of answered this question already but I said which specialty would you have pursued if you hadn't specialized in acute medicine. I guess you said you you know you said you left rheumatology but is there anything else which maybe turned your head from uh, from acute medicine?
1: Um well I got I think I applied for every job and I think I thought of every specialty but my actual first job I got as an ST3 was academic endocrinology. <laughs> Um, which when I think about it is bonkers. So I applied for the job, I got interviewed um, and I got a place and that was in the West Midlands. And then I had a panic and I was like, I am not an academic and an endocrinologist. What am I thinking? So I then I applied for rheumatology. And then I don't know why I applied for rheumatology. And then I thought, right, I'm going to go and work for Medicine Sans Frontières for a few years. And I had one of those proper crises of confidence in careers. So Really what I wanted to do, and I guess what didn't exist and doesn't still exist, is I wanted to be a jobbing general physician. I love general medicine. I love pathophysiology. I love those complex clinical conundrums. Um, I just love general medicine. And for me, the fit is acute medicine because there's a lot of general medicine in it. Um, And I guess I eventually came to that um, through a very circuitous route. Um, I finally found my specialty after being a doctor for about, how long was I a doctor for? Uh, Seven years before I found my specialty, which is crazy. Because at the time, a lot of my friends from med school were consultants or GPs. And there was me. I was starting over again. So I'm in acute medicine now, which is the best specialty in the world. I'm going to say that because I absolutely love it. <laughs> <And> I'm absolutely <laughs> passionate about it.
0: That's brilliant. And one of the things I was uh, I was going to ask is, I guess for those who haven't made up their mind and, you know, maybe open to uh, persuasion, um, what qualities do you think make someone suitable for a career in acute medicine?
1: So I've been thinking about this today, thinking... <laughs> What do you need to be a good acute physician? So I think number one is enthusiasm for the for the specialty um, and a willingness to be able to work in lots of different areas within the acute medicine footprint. So I work in the emergency department, I work in same-day emergency care, I work in the medical decisions unit, I work on frailty. I work on the admissions units. I work on short stay ward. So it's ability to move around all those different areas and slot into them. I'm better at some things than others, but um, you know, so being flexible and adaptable I think is really, really important. Um, No two days are ever the same in acute medicine. So I guess being open to surprise and not being scared by surprise. And enjoying the challenge of every day being different, Um, having lots of energy. (laughs) So it's not uncommon in acute medicine to be on your feet from eight in the morning till eight at night. Um, And that's the same, I'm sure, of a lot of specialties. You know, you are walking around a lot and, you know, so many times I've seen how many steps I've done, you know, and you're sort of on 20,000, 25,000. And so you are always on your feet. (laughs) I think the key thing about acute medicine is really being able to deal with uncertainty and not be scared of uncertainty. So we see a huge number of patients every day. So some days I might see 30, 40 people. And I think what we need to do, all of us need to do as physicians is rely a lot less on investigations. And I know I talk about this a lot because I think we overline investigations, and I think we need to focus more actually on basics, history, and examination. And certainly in acute medicine, we have a short amount of time with the patient and we have an infinite number of resources. And I think it's about really rationalizing what investigations you need to do, what you don't need to do, really understanding the sensitivity and specificity of these tests you're doing and the management. And if you're not sure, being happy with that uncertainty and being able to go home at night and not really worry and overthink about it because there is a lot of difficult situations sometimes in acute medicine where you make decisions you're not sure about. And certainly I have learned to try and leave my work at home although to be fair I'm not that good at that considering I do work most evenings but anyway um, I'm still working on that (laughs) yeah thinking on your feet being a good teacher you have lots of people with you every day so knowing how to incorporate education into your day being a good communicator because you often work with every single specialty in the hospital. So on any given day, I might communicate with cardiology, ITU, vascular surgeons, through to the research librarians, through to the charity. So it's really been able to speak to everybody and have that good teamwork and yeah, energy, enthusiasm, passion. And it is the best specialty in the world. I'm just going to say that again. <laughs> and I guess <laughs> also what is great about acute medicine is you see patients from every single specialty. So in any given day, I could see a hypothyroidism, a hyponatremia, a myocardial infarction, a stroke, meningitis. It's it's very, very varied. And I really like that.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And I've got to say, you, you said the one word which I... Actually, thought of myself in the in the build up to the the podcast because I was wondering what you know sorts of things you would say, and the fir- and the word which came to mind was adaptable. Yeah, because at least working with the uh, acute medics that you know I work with on a regular basis, whether as a cardiology reg or on the take, it seems like every you know additional result that comes back, any blood test or chest X ray or whatever, they're just immediately, yep, okay, on to the next thing, and then or even if it's something unexpected it's you know they just know exactly what it's either going down one uh, fork in the road and like you say you mentioned the number of places where you where you work and out of absolutely everywhere there's and there's great variety in it as well so yeah absolutely uh, agree with so much of what you said there to do with uh, acute medicine but obviously one of the things which comes with uh, acute medicine is you must work very closely with uh, the the medical red john call so how about we Absolutely. we segue back to um, the well, what we had intended to talk about at the start, and we, <laughs> we talked about uh, we talked about your memories. We talked about how the medical reg role has changed since uh, since your training. And so, what I really wanted to ask is if you could summarize. Maybe I've, I've put you a limit of three. I'll give you maybe three and a half, but. <laughs> The top three skills or attributes that you would say a great medical reg needs and why you think that's the case.
1: Okay. So again, I've been thinking long and hard about this. And I was thinking about myself as a med-reg sort of pre-changing specialty. And I was also thinking about, you know, when you when I'm the consultant on call, I always look at the rotor and I'm I look at the med reg who's on and I either go, yeah. oh oh god so I was trying to think about the the registrars who I see and I'm like they're on I'm like what do I what do they have that makes me think they're a fantastic reg what are their attributes and there are there are so many and I'm just gonna I've got my perfect registrar in my head at the moment and I'm going to describe them firstly the key thing is being organized so organization as a med reg is paramount. Now, I I am slightly anal retentive about organization, although I also am chaotic. But I love a list, even though lists have gone out of fashion. You can't beat a list with a tick box that you tick, or you put half a tick in it, or you put a cross in it. It's just so satisfying. So, being organized... Knowing who your team are. So as a medical registrar, you come on, you start your shift, and the first thing you must do is introduce yourself to the team. Now, I've worked with some registrars who don't do that, and I have to find them. The missing registrar, where do the missing registrars go? So is there a place in the hospital where the, because I'll be like, has anybody seen the med reg? No. Has anybody seen the med reg? No. Where are they? Where do they go? So, don't be a missing med reg. Be a present med reg. Be visible. That's really important. I mean, obviously, you go for breaks and that's fine. But when I don't see them for like three or four hours, I'm like, okay. Um, so, being present, being visible, being organized, knowing who is on your team, trying to identify the strengths and weaknesses of those in your team, knowing who your juniors are, knowing which patients you've got to see. So, for example, if you're working in ED, knowing the patients that need post-taking, knowing the patients that need to be clerked, knowing the patients that have been post taked being aware of the sick patients that may be in recess, being aware of the patients that are coming in. Really, you are the eyes and ears of the on-call. You need to have your finger in lots and lots of pies. So you need to be on it, on, your, on the top of your game. It's hard to do that for 12 hours. I did it for 10 years and it was, oh, it's arduous. So I think to help being organized, it's about having lists. It's about keep connecting with your team, ensuring you know where your team are, connect with your consultant, write everybody's bleep number down make yourself visible to the coordinator in ED, know who the charge nurse is, call everybody, you know, know everybody's name, work very closely with the ED registrar and the ED team as well. And it's really is about teamwork and being organized. So, organization really is important. So, number two, my second attribute, enthusiasm. (laughs) Now, um, Again, when I'm working with an enthusiastic med reg who loves to learn, who is happy to learn, who asks questions, who challenges me, that's what I want. So I was on call last week um, and I had a really difficult case. And to put it into context, I've been on maternity leave. I'm actually still on maternity leave. So I'm doing a few shifts to try and get myself back into thinking like a doctor and not a mom. And my first patient was in Rhesus and she was a hyponatremic patient and um, very, very low sodium. And, you know, I, my management plan and I spoke to my reg about my management plan and she challenged me. And she said, are you sure that's what you want to do? And I was like, yes. And she was like, really? And I'm like, well, why wouldn't you do that? And she was like, well, if you fluid restrict somebody who's been overcorrected for hyponatremia, this will happen. And I was like, oh, you're absolutely right. So be a registrar who challenges decisions. Don't take what your consultant says as gospel because we do not know everything and I will never know everything Um, and often registrars know a hell of a lot more than I do particularly if you've just done paces and all that knowledge is there so don't ever be afraid to question and challenge I think that's really really important Um, I love being challenged because I went home and then read the latest hypernatremic guidelines
0: yeah and one one thing I just add into that as well is that some listeners might be thinking oh well how, how do we, how do you go about that in a way without, you know, offending the consultant, or, you know, almost like you're pulling rank saying, you know, or, you know, I don't agree with your management plan. And at least my advice for that would be there's a tactful way of, of going about it. And the way you described your registrar challenging you is, is exactly the way that I would do it. Or at least I would probably say something like, well, for my learning, you know, can I, can you just sort of explain why, you know, why, why have you decided to uh, do it like that? Or why have you decided to get this particular scan? And you know more often than not, whenever I've asked that question, the consultant's been able to justify it, and you say, "Okay, well, fair enough, thanks very much." and then you've then you've had your learning point for the for the day. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. definitely agree. Challenging consultants, and it's refreshing to hear that some consultants want to be challenged. I wonder if it will be. Cr- I wonder if it would be quite the same for, uh, let's say, consultants of a a slightly older generation. But I think take each person as, as they come. And I'm sure some people will be more open to it than others, for sure.
1: And I think as consultants, we also need to change the way we think and we practice. Because, you know, what I really don't like is that massive hierarchy that exists within medicine and it still exists. And I really challenge that hierarchy because... I learned so much from the people around me. So, even though I'm a consultant, every day I learn something new. So, you know, I say, like, at the end of the day, everybody has to have learned one new thing. And actually, I've learned loads of new things. So, last week, I learned so much stuff. The same registrar, who is fantastic, said to me, Amy, come and have a look. Um, I'm doing, folk, she was doing a point of care ultrasound. She was doing an acidic tap. And I was like, oh, my God, I've never used ultrasound for an acidic tap. We didn't even have ultrasound for acidic taps when I was a reg. So she showed me what ascites looked like on the ultrasound scan. It was brilliant. I've never done that before. You can learn so much from each other. And I think we really need to do that. And as consultants, we really need to get off that hierarchy and learn from those around us.
0: Absolutely brilliant to hear. And so you had number one, organisation. Had you had you finished with number two of uh, enthusiasm, or did you have more yes, to say on that? No, I mean
1: I could, I mean I'm very enthusiastic about it, so I could talk about it for ages. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think I'll move on to number three. Um, so I guess this is slightly more serious, and I think for me, probably one of the most important ones is an ability to self reflect, and an ability to be humble, and. Self-reflection, I think, is something that you have to learn. And for me, it didn't come naturally. And I'm sure for some people it does come naturally. But for me, it didn't. And my self-reflection was very much overcritical. And I would criticise everything I did. And I could never see the good in anything I did. um, And I was probably overcritical of myself. Or, to be fair, when I was a very junior med reg, I wasn't critical enough and I almost felt like I was untouchable. I was a little bit overconfident. I was a little bit cocky. And I had a really um, difficult experience as a med-reg, which um, basically resulted in me um, having to move dinaries, um for, for many reasons. But I'll give you a little brief synopsis about the story, really, um, in that I was accused of um, bullying and I was shocked you know I've never really thought of myself like that to be honest and it was because in a handover that I was doing I was taking a handover from another medical registrar who felt I was aggressive who felt I was dismissive and very critical I I found that criticism of myself really hard and at the same place, I then um, made a massive medical error, Um, huge, which um, I also do talk about um, and I really messed up and a patient ended up in ITU. So, I had a very difficult six months where I made a very big medical error and where I was um, accused of being a bully. So... I had meetings about the medical error. I had meetings about my conduct. Um, It turned out that it was deemed that I wasn't a bully um, and that it was miscommunication. And however, I did make the medical error. But what I did do and that really taught me, and this was about six or seven years ago, was that self-reflection is so, so important when I reflected on how I'd spoken to that medical registrar, Do you know what? I wasn't very nice. It wasn't appropriate. And I was aggressive. And I think that comes from, I'm a five foot one, you know, short, um, acute physician. Um, and it was almost like, I have like short woman syndrome. You know, I used to be a lot more aggressive. Uh, um, I'm trying to think.
0: A pocket rocket
1: a pocket rocket. People used to come, to be fair, I think maybe still a bit of that. But yeah, a pocket rocket, you know, and um, quite full on and quite intense. Um, And I could never see that some people would find that quite distressing. I do now. I've massively reflected on that. And I hope, I don't know what the people who work with me would say, but I think I'm definitely way better now. And a lot of that, stemmed from the fact that I loved my job and I was passionate about my patients and I wanted the best for them. And, you know, if I felt that the person who was handing over to me hadn't done a good enough job or hadn't done the investigations or management I'd want them to do, I was like, well, why haven't you done that? You know, that's, you know, you haven't done your hardest. Well, actually, they may have took 40 referrals and had a really bad day, but I'd never really put myself in somebody else's shoes. So now my ability to empathize with others hopefully has got better from self-reflection and it's the same with a medical error that I made you know for two months I couldn't self-reflect I just couldn't see a way out of the really challenging situation I was in I had again more time off work I was burnt out again and you know that was again another massive challenging time of self-reflection now I self-reflect all the time I talk about my feelings all the time. I talk about what a day I've had, what I've learned, what I haven't learned, how I feel, maybe too much sometimes. But so your ability to self-reflect in a safe psychological space is so, so important.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree with you more on that. And I think one of the things that really helps with that, and I've got two things which I think are sort of related to to what you've been describing. The first of which is, Being able to self-reflect, I think, is is really supported by having a team around you Mm -hmm. and having a team around you who are willing to bounce off ideas and having a cohesive department. And I I guess that counts more as a consultant rather than as a reg. But even so, having approachable um, acute medical consultants is, for me, absolutely invaluable. The team where I work, I have and wouldn't hesitate to knock on the office door and say do you mind if i just discuss this case with you i'm not really sure whether it's hundred percent whether i made the right decision and you know i have spoken to consultants on that and having the insights to know when you feel the need to discuss a case i think is really important as as a as a medical reg and the second thing i was going to say as well is having the insights to self reflect on that if you do run into trouble and you end up in any form of uh, misconduct hearing or you know significant supervisor meetings or or something similar any judgment which is made on you will be exponentially worse if you have no insight as to what might have happened and if you just focus on focus on you and your perceptions and your opinion. And don't actually think about how your actions affected others or how things could have been misinterpreted, how communication might have been improved or different. If you lack the insight to do that, the repercussions from any disciplinary hearing would be far worse than if you didn't have that. And having the humbleness and, yeah, I guess, insight to insight into yourself and the ability to self-reflect is as you've already talked about so critically important and particularly with difficult cases things like things like nasty arrest calls unwell deteriorating patients that have to go to intensive care or unfortunately those that pass away being able to reflect on those and think would i've done anything differently and actually just thinking about that today i um, signed off a ticket for uh, an F1 colleague of mine. Who it was so clear in the description of the ticket that this foundation doctor had reflected. So it's, it's one of the best bits of reflection I've read from someone so early in their career. And I sort of just thought, you know what, he needs to he needs to cling on to that attitude as he progresses through his career because it just stands you in such good stead um, having that ability so yeah absolutely love that as your as your third attribute of, of of a great medical reg we've covered the top three you've already said organization enthusiasm and Self-reflection. And the next one I was going to ask you is, what attribute, and I've asked you just to pick one, what attribute would you say is less important for a medical reg? Something which is sort of overrated or a skill which is sort of overrated, which maybe we as regs or junior doctors might think, oh, this is super important when actually, probably actually doesn't matter that much.
1: Now, I'm going to say something probably really controversial now. Um, and I want to be challenged on it, um, because um, and it's it's probably gonna sound really weird coming from me who is obsessed with education, who is obsessed with teaching. Um, and I actually think the most overrated attribute is knowledge. And the reason I say that is, yes, knowledge is important. However, A good medical registrar who can take a fantastic history, who can do a brilliant examination, who can really understand the patient, who can really form a relationship with that patient, who can clinically reason, who can think about differential diagnoses, potential investigations and possible management plans. However, they might not know the exact management plan for that person who has pneumococcal septicemia. They may not know the exact dose of magnesium sulfate for that person who is having an acute exacerbation of asthma. But you know what? They can ask somebody or they can read it. It's all there. And what I struggle with a little bit is, yes, knowledge is important. But it's not the be all and end all. And I would much rather work with a registrar who has good communication skills, who is enthusiastic, who self reflects, who is good with patients, who can clinically reason, but may not know absolutely everything about the Krebs cycle. Because do you know what? You can read about the Krebs cycle, but what you can't teach is that ability to really connect with people. And for me, yes, knowledge is important, but I do think. As junior doctors and as medical registrars, that people often think it's way more important than actually it needs to be.
0: Wow, love it, (laughs) love it. I I don't know. I don't know if I was expecting knowledge as the uh, as the underrated (laughs) thing.
1: I'm not sure I should have said that actually, but I did, and I'm going to stick by my guns because yes, I love knowledge. I love. I'm like a sponge. I love learning, and yes, it is so important, but. I don't want medical registrars or people who want to go into medicine or want to become medical registrars to think they they aren't good enough because they haven't got the photographic memory like their colleague who's going to be a medical registrar. So I think what I'm trying to say is, you know, you don't have to know everything to be a fantastic med reg.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's always, I mean, the one thing which is, so difficult is that these exams similar to paces or even finals you hold it in your head for that time for the exam as everyone does but actually when you enter the working world as long as you know where to find the relevant information by and large it doesn't it doesn't really matter if you don't know Mm -hmm. which sounds dreadful but actually once the exam is gone you do tend to forget some stuff but what what you do what i find you do retain you do retain the stuff which is clinically relevant in your clinical practice and things which you will use on the job and you can keep some knowledge for the exam some knowledge will translate into clinical practice but majority of it you can find elsewhere and that's what clinical guidelines are for on your trust intranet or you know on your phone on your md calc or your bnf exactly so yeah
1: and i think medicine changes every day in the fact that there's always new evidence always new guidelines there's always new research there is no way we can ever keep up to date with all of that so what i think was as physicians what we need to do a little bit again i'm going to say something controversial um is we really need to equip Doctors and medical students with an ability to use the information out there better. So instead of teaching everybody about the exact management of acute coronary syndrome, which might change next week, it might change next year, why not give people the ability to know where to look for the information, how to utilize it, how to identify if it's good research, bad research? And really, the key thing for me is clinical reasoning. You know, if we can really teach those innate skills and develop the ability to clinically reason, everything else falls into place, you know, because we're not taught how to clinically reason. We're taught knowledge and we're taught by rote and we're, you know, when we're examined. We are asked to give five courses of pleural effusion. Well, I can search that and find that on the internet. What I can't do is I can't look on the internet for how to really think, why has that person got that pleural effusion? You know, what's really going on? Could it be a pleural effusion? Okay, so let's think about the investigations. Let's think about the management. You know, I think I much more would, I think we need to spend a lot more time on those clinical skills, to be honest.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And then moving on to, well, the last question, Mm -hmm. and it's in some ways similar, one of the questions I asked earlier, but particularly early in the career of a of a medical reg so thinking of you know people similar to me who might just be finishing their uh, internal medical training or those foundation doctors who are considering applying for IMT or anyone who is considering a career as a budding medical reg what do you think are the habits they need to be forming early or important things that they should be picking up early on in their career that's going to stand them in good stead as they as they continue on?
1: So for me, on reflection on my time as a med reg and what I think I didn't do probably early on in my career, but definitely later on was the importance of having a mentor and having a role model. Because the support and the relationship you can have with that mentor and role model can completely revolutionise your training and change your career. I was lucky to have two fantastic mentors and role models as a registrar. And it's only sort of in the last few years when I've realized how amazing they are and what a massive impact they've had on me. So, as a new registrar, find somebody out there who you connect with, who you can talk to, who you can communicate, who you respect, who you trust, doesn't have to be in the same specialty at all, but somebody who is senior to you, who you look up to, who you can go to for advice Who will provide you with that, I guess, almost like a critical friend sort of um, opinion and ideas and advice throughout your career? Now, I've had two mentors, um, and my first mentor, um, who I still speak to now, um, she's amazing. And she really made me question all my decisions I made in my career, she's made me question clinical decisions. She has opened my eyes to a whole new world of education. She introduced me to different people, to different ways of educating that I never even knew existed. And again, the same with my second mentor. She provided support in a different way in that she really supported me through my very challenging time when I went through my very difficult um, medical error. She really made me believe in myself and really made me believe that I could do the job that I was doing. Um, And again, she challenged and she questions, but mainly she, she guided me as well. So I would encourage everyone who's listening to find a mentor because that is really what's helped me massively throughout my career. And I don't have one anymore. I still speak to the same mentors, but I feel like I should ne- need to get a mentor now. I'm a consultant, um, so I really do think mentorship is is really important.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely brilliant point. And one thing which I would just add into that as well is that you know some people you know may not have found their mentor. Some people may be new in a specialty; they don't know where they can find a mentor. It, it can be difficult. One thing which I would advise if if that's the case, if you haven't met someone who you might consider a mentor, is think of the think of the consultants who you have worked with. Think of those with attributes that you want to take into your career as a consultant or even as a as a reg or just at any point in your career. Just think of the mm-hmm. attributes where you think, Yeah, that's really sensible. I wanna I wanna practice like that. And eventually what you do, you end up picking up habits from the numbers of great clinicians around you and you just you tend to just incorporate them into into your own Mm -hmm. practice so Mm -hmm. I would say if you haven't found a mentor that's fine as long as you can in a way sort of proactively look out for the the types of attributes which you want to take into your career and in a similar way as you've described Amy I have I have a couple of mentors one of whom I know really well and um, we're on you know good speaking terms etc but there's one I guess you may not call them a mentor, more of a role model, who was uh, an educator at the university that I studied at. And actually, I sort of just have kept them in mind for just a long time. And Whenever I think of them, they're not a, a medic, they're a pediatrician. Whenever I think of them, I just think, what would they do in this sort of situation? And it's that sort of perspective, which can just make you challenge your own beliefs and question your own Uh, Your own perspective, and try and help you develop yourself as a clinician using that self-reflection, which uh, which you talked about er earlier in the episode.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I really like that actually, that you've you brought that up because we all work with people, and I see things in them that I love, and then I work with other people who I think, oh, I'm not sure I'd want to be like that, and certainly as a registrar I did model myself on these consultants so I think I'm a bit of a hybrid of all these fantastic consultants I've ever worked with and I you know if I look at these people and I think if I am a tenth of the doctor that they are I would be happy because they're so incredible um And then I see people I work with and I'm like, oh, my word, I just don't want to have any of those attributes. And I think it is like, you know, you say you choose the attributes that you like and also you identify what you don't want to be like.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And I think that's a really lovely summing up on which to come to to the end of the podcast. Absolutely. we owe you, uh, Amy, a huge uh, debt of thanks for coming on uh, the Pre-PACES podcast. It's been a real delight to uh, have you speak so candidly about both your experiences as a reg, but also giving advice to those of us who are early in their reg careers or, or maybe just coming to approach it. So we really appreciate you uh, coming on the show. And thank you so much for joining us.
1: Lovely. Thank you so much. Thanks.
0: And listeners, you can find Amy on Twitter at Amy Burbridge. You can find Home of Medicine on pretty much every uh, popular podcasting app. Definitely go and have a listen to that once you're finished listening to this episode of the show. That is the end of another show. Don't forget to like, follow and subscribe um, to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We always love to hear from you. We love to hear your ideas for episodes. We love your feedback. So please do give us a shout over on our Twitter, which is at Podcast, or on our website, PrePacesPodcast.com. If you really want to go above and beyond consider supporting the show with a pay what you can donation on at buymeacoffee.com slash PrePaces podcast. But for now, we're just about out of time. We thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time on the pre-paces podcast.